Okay, sir. Uh, so, so very warm welcome to everybody. Uh, this is a boring board guy. I'm Mr. GS. The date is 7th May 2022. And uh, the time is 12.52. And uh, so we have a very special guest. It's my English teacher, Sundesh, sir. So we are going to discuss some uh, philosophers and uh, their philosophies. Uh, it's going to be a short 20-minute episode. I hope you love it. Uh, so let's start. Uh, so, sir, I read uh, Nietzsche's uh, reason in philosophy, how the true world finally became a fable, the history of an error. So I understand that you have read him. So I have some questions. Why is awareness of the world secondary to consciousness of self? Well, what uh, Nietzsche says in that uh, part of his book, I think it's from his book called uh, Twilight of the Idols. Yes, sir. Uh, the reason in uh, philosophy, the history of an error. So what he says in that book is that, uh, you know, from uh, time immemorial, almost since the beginning of Christianity, in fact, uh, people have tried to subdue and control their desires and uh, so on through the use of the reason. Because uh, these uh, desires and passions and emotions and uh, even thoughts, they took them on a whirlwind uh, tour. They always tried to control these uh, passionate desires. And uh, they thought that reason would uh, uh, help them to look at uh, life in a clearer and a more, uh, you know, calmer uh, light. But uh, that, uh, according to Nietzsche, could never happen. But actually, Nietzsche doesn't say that. Uh, you know, uh, consciousness of uh, the self is Excuse me, sir. It was a network issue. So we are continuing it. You are uh, telling about something about Nietzsche. Yeah. So uh, actually, Nietzsche doesn't say that uh, uh, knowledge of the self is all that helpful in real life, right? Yes, sir. But. Uh, uh, and in fact, uh, he doesn't actually say that uh, consciousness of the self is, comes prior to consciousness of the world. That is actually said by the psychoanalyst uh, that is Carl Gustav Jung, who in fact makes the comment in uh, one of his uh, books called uh, The Syzygy. Uh, the syzygy, that is, uh, syzygy is a description of anima and animus. There are two parts of uh, the psyche. Yes, sir. And in that uh, essay or uh, 
practical, he says that uh, he who knows himself knows God. That's what Carl Gustav Jung says. And in fact, Carl Gustav Jung, I think he rightly says that, you know, the psyche, that is the mind, you know, the part of the mind, that is the first uh, thing that experiences the world. It is the first thing that uh, experiences the world. See, uh, according to Jung, uh, there are two types of, uh, you know, uh, there are two psychological types of the world. One is the extroverted uh, type and the other one is the introverted type. The extroverted type always uh, tends to look outside. He hardly ever pays attention to himself. But the introverted type always uh, tends to, you know, sort of sublimate the external reality so that uh, he can, uh, you know, get a grasp of what he is doing. So this idea of uh, the self coming into uh, the knowledge of the self coming uh, prior to knowledge of the world uh, actually belongs uh, maybe to the introverted uh, psychological type. So, um, uh, of course, uh, I'll repeat what Young says uh, that, you know, if you want to do anything in the world, it is you are doing it, that is your psyche, is the first experience of the world. So in order to do something in the world, you must have a knowledge of, you know, what are and what you are capable of. Basically, what you say, you must know your strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. So, so that was a very good explanation, sir. Uh, but I, if I may ask you two questions, follow-up questions. Uh, one is uh, the conventional notions uh, of the modern world, uh, of the modern world that uh, introvert and extrovert uh, are like, uh, introverts are like depressed people and extroverts are like lively people who go outside, do everything. Introverts are like mostly uh, in their homes, confined to one particular location, do not mingle with others, etc., etc. How does that compare uh, with uh, how does that compare with uh, others, sir? Uh, like the view given by Nietzsche. Uh, actually, introverts and extroverts, they can all, they are both successful in their own ways, according to Young. Okay, yes, and uh, according to Paul Gustav Young. Uh, who says uh, that, uh, you know, uh, they both need each other. See, while the extrovert tends to look outside at the object, whatever the object may be, okay, yes, sir. he lose a grasp of its uh, significance, symbolic significance. It may be a huge uh, conglomerate or it can be a huge... Uh, entity, but he will tend to look only at, uh, you know, the profit motive or the real estate of the company, things like that. He'll tend to lose a grip of its uh, symbolic significance. Okay, so whether it's introvert or extrovert, uh, both of them, whether the extrovert tries to 
whether the object fascinates the expert or whether the object is sublimated by the introvert. Okay, both uh, these uh, types uh, on on uh, on a fundamental level, it's only a sensation that both of them are interested in, according to Young. Uh, according to Nietzsche, what he says is that you see, uh, Nietzsche uh, he you know goes against this idea of being. The idea of being means that uh, there is no thought, there is no emotion. It is purely a state of existence. Okay. Yes, sir. This idea of uh, existence, of being. Uh, it, was, uh, it was very popular and it caused a fascination for people because, you see, because of the pain and sorrow that uh, is associated with uh, anything you do, uh, anything you do, it, uh, may, most of the time it may turn out disappointing. Okay. So, you see, actually Carl Gustav says this, the, the, there are many disappointments and, you know, frustrations. <coughs> <coughs> you know, there are many struggles with that all ending disappointment, right? Yes, sir. So, to avoid this pain, to avoid this sorrow, to avoid these things, and uh, people thought, you know, that actually it is the instincts, the passions, the desires, which causes, and so they must, these passions must be, you know, suppressed and uh, they must be done away with uh, by means of cold, clear, logical reason. Okay, so Nietzsche actually goes against this. He says, you know, if you're just in a state of being, if you're just existing, then what is the use? You're, you might as well be in heaven or in some other uh, ethereal place, you know, beyond the clouds. Why should you come down to the And in fact, Nietzsche says, you know, that this idea of being, apart uh, from being the ideal, it is the idea of becoming, you know, where things keep evolving, but things changing. That is the ultimate reality. And uh, Nietzsche was a follower Heraclitus of uh, ancient Greeks. Uh, Heraclitus said that creation is like fire. It says fire uh, always uh, keeps changing and uh, keeps, uh, you know, uh, it's always uh, burning and uh, passionate. So that is the nature of creation, that is the nature of creation. Nietzsche supported Heraclitus, but uh, he refuted Plato. And uh, Socrates, Plato and Socrates felt that you know there was uh, something called uh, the ideal uh, heaven, a uh, heavenly place yes. where each object in the world has got its ideal representative. So, for example, if you have a cot or a bed, the cot or the bed you have is a picture of the ideal bed in heaven. So, uh, uh, this uh, idea, you know, that uh, there, is, there is an ideal uh, 
essence, so to speak, and to come into touch with the sense of things. Essence essentially means spirit. So if you are a spirit, you naturally cannot uh, function in the real world, right? So Nietzsche felt that, uh, you know, our problem of trying to suppress some instincts and uh, making the light of the world clear and cold through reason, he felt that we must participate with all our passions and all our you know, yes. things in the real world. So that actually leads to uh, success. Okay, sir. So next, uh, let's go on to Karl Marx, uh, the guy who invented socialism, the so-called big evil. But uh, I have a different take on socialism, but that's for another day. But I wanted to ask you about his philosophies. Uh, in his famous uh, work, that is the Das Kapital, uh, he says that uh, the notion that contemporary societies are fundamentally shaped by and continuously reproduce dynamics of domination, exploitation and repression. Uh, it's uh, a big take on uh, like against the capitalism, I think so. Uh, it's uh, pretty clear from there. But uh, why does he say so and how does it relate to his philosophy? And uh, why is the language an important tool for this, sir? Uh, actually, uh, when you talk about exploitation and uh, oppression, yes, sir. you are talking about uh, the stronger and the weaker. Yes, sir. And... Uh, no, what Nietzsche says about this is that uh, there will always be inequality in the world. It is not as though just capitalism, uh, capitalist countries follow democracy, that everyone is equal there. Equality is a myth according to Nietzsche. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, equality is a myth according to Nietzsche because there will always be the stronger and the weaker. And in fact, according to Nietzsche, he says that, you know, apart uh, from, uh, you know, calm, cool thought being the arbiter, being the decider of, you know, calm, cool thought making decisions, it is the power and the strength that ultimately have uh, sway over uh, the outcome of an event. So uh, it is. Uh, it is not as though you know that uh, the somebody will uh, try to uh, what uplift the, the masses if they don't have an advantage in it. They they simply has to be something that is desired by the person. It cannot be uh, totally platonic. Uh, uh, you know, platonic uh, sort of attitude that people can have towards others. Uh, in fact, uh, somewhere, uh, I think I read it in some humorous poem or something, that, you know, people just don't want to help others. Okay, it's against their nature. Uh, so, it, it, so, whatever... Uh, whatever you do has to come from within. There are very few who, you know, actually do this. So, uh, whether when we talk about oppression and things like that, it depends on the people. There may be a minority of the majority, 
but they have the power and the strength. That decides the thing. And as far as language goes, see, the language of the oppressed. See, according to William Wordsworth, the sweetest songs are made from saddest thoughts. The sweetest thoughts are made from saddest thoughts. So those uh, people who are oppressed, they tend to sing of their problems. They tend to write poems and uh, they tend to, you know, uh, use art as a means of expression. But uh, the language of the people, uh, especially, you know, uh, uh, cities and uh, cultivated places, it is not uh, actually suited uh, to poetry and uh, to art in general because you see, if you go to, if you look at uh, society, for example, if you take the state of Karnataka, if you go to North Karnataka or to Canberra or to Dakshin Kanda, you'll find the dialect of Kannada spoken there is much more musical. They're not in the mainstream. They are, you know, are, uh, if you take a place like Malnad, or if you take a place like uh, if you take a place uh, like, uh, you know, these are uh, not cultivated places, but their language is uh, musical. And that's what uh, William Wordsworth also says. Uh, in fact, uh, in his book, Preface uh, to Political Ballads, William Wordsworth wrote, you know, that the language of the common man is more suited to poetry than was the language of the court of this time, King's Court. So, uh, this sort of thing uh, are some of the ideas, you know, about uh, oppression and uh, language. When people are oppressed, they tend to sing and produce art. Yeah. It's a really fascinating take and I hope, uh, and it's actually really fascinating. I hope yeah, other people also look into these different philosophies, etc. and try to uh, lead their life through them. And uh, then uh, I think, so let's go on to maybe last year, my most favorite philosopher that is Henry David Thoreau. And I'm deeply interested actually in his take on civil disobedience and slavery because uh, he came into prominence when uh, there was the civil war in America. So how does that relate to his philosophy? Uh, actually, civil disobedience uh, may not have much of a philosophy as such. It is more of a political applet. Uh, as uh, indeed, uh, like many of the world leaders like Martin Luther King, like Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson, Nelson Mandela, how they, they used uh, civil disobedience for their own freedom struggles. In fact, the story goes, that Thoreau uh, was on his way to pay, was on his way to get his uh, shoes mended, and uh, the tax collector came and asked him to pay his poll tax. And Henry uh, David Thoreau refused to pay the poll tax because he said, you know, if I pay the tax, the money that I pay will be used to pay. Uh, Musket. Musket is a gun in those days. No, right for me. It'd be used to buy a musket with which to shoot uh, 
slave or to help America participate in the war against Mexico. Right? So he didn't want to pay his tax to an unjust government. To an unjust government. Okay. He speaks of a just government. He speaks of legislators like Solon in ancient Greece. And, you know, they were divine legislators. In ancient Greece and Rome, they were divine legislators. But uh, modern governments are nothing but, uh, you know, an image of an image of those sort of powerful empires, governments of those powerful empires. So he asked, you know, if the government of America is going to regulate the export and import of tobacco, yes, sir. is the export and import of tobacco a fit subject for government, for divine legislators? And is uh, the mistreating of slaves, slavery, a fit subject for humane legislators? So, all in all, you know, uh, he says, you know, yeah, I can sum it up in this way. Uh, Henry David Thoreau says that, you know, if uh, uh, a, a person feels that uh, the government is unjust, then you should not pay your penny into its kitty. You should not uh, pay your penny into its kitty and thus withdraw his support. Now, uh, this, uh, uh, you know, political statement, civil disobedience, uh, it could have been used by Mahatma Gandhi in, uh, in another way. Of course, he learned about non-violence from it, and he said, Sandy David Thoreau said, you know, that, uh, by not paying your tax, uh, it is a form of non-violent revolution. Yes, sir. Uh, so, uh, non-violence may have been born from civil disobedience, but there's another way in which Mahatma Gandhi could have used it, and that is by, you know, he could have simply asked the representatives of the British government in India, whether it's the police uh, commissioner or whether it's any of them, to just resign from the post. See, if the minority of the people in the service of the British, the minority of the Indians in the service of the British had resigned from the post, Queen Victoria or, uh, or King George could not have done anything in India. It was the representatives of that government, Arabic government, in India, which did so much so civil disobedience is an essay which is full of fascinating uh, thoughts. And we could also we could always learn, you know, how we can, how the things could have been better. Okay. So it is a mirror which is holding up as different to uh, governments today. Okay. So, uh, of course, uh, if you take civil disobedience aside, you will also have to take it from Nietzsche. Because, uh, see, uh, if you look at Nietzsche, he says, you know, power is an arbiter. Power is a thing that makes uh, 
decisions in the real world. And it's not actually gentleness and calmness like Toro suggests. So both uh, the authors uh, should be dealt with uh, thoroughly. There should be no half-hearted or half-baked reading of them. Okay. Uh, because uh, many times they will try to, they will uh, sometimes they, uh, you know, uh, controvert themselves. They, uh, they say, no, they contrast their own arguments. Okay. Okay. So both of them do give a rounded view of uh, society in the right, people in the right. Uh, that is both power as well as gentleness play a part. Uh, okay, yes, but uh, must have a thorough reading and not half-baked reading any author actually. And uh, some authors must be taken in context with other authors. Because uh, as uh, uh, Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson says, you know, the influence on genius on genius is uh, too strong. Okay, so you must have periods of rest and you must uh, Try to, you know, uh, look at look at it impartially in a spirit of objectivity before you decide on any course of action suggested by either one author or many authors. That's an interesting thing. Uh, so we have come to the end of the episode. I just want to ask last question. Uh, I just want to have your take on a pretty modern issue that is the rise of artificial intelligence. It, uh, it uh, makes someone happy, it uh, concerns someone else, but uh, what's your take on that and uh, how do you feel that we humans can cope up with uh, the rise of artificial intelligence? Yeah, uh, actually this uh, question, you can go back to all the religious texts. Yes, sir. See, the religious texts say that God created man in his own image so that we are an image of divinity. All of us are images of divinity. We can all be potentially godlike, right? Yes, sir. But, uh, 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 so God made man his own image. And now, a human being is making a machine in his own image. This is a direct uh, lineage. If the idea that God created man is true, then the idea that a man will produce a machine like himself uh, is in direct uh, linear lineage, right? So the linear sort of progression, right? Yes. But uh, uh, there are well-known arguments uh, uh, like, you know, uh, or artificial intelligence will take away many of the jobs of uh, <clears throat> people and uh, only those uh, jobs which are which require extreme amount of uh, intellectual exertion you know people who are the smartest uh, only they will have jobs the rest will be unemployment and uh, will be unemployed and so on and so forth uh, the current at the present time and uh, it is uh, you know, it is, uh, of course, they will try to sort of, uh, uh, you know, gloss it over and say, you know, of course, uh, uh, comforts will be increased and uh, 
the number of leisure hours of everybody will be increased and people will have plenty of leisure. But actually, uh, what happens is, let's suppose you have one machine to cook rice, like a pressure cooker. Yes, sir. Then uh, if you have uh, in the time spent in cooking rice will be lessened, but uh, the time spent in other work will be increased. So apart from uh, you know uh, decreasing the labor and apart from decreasing the you know uh, uh, you know now as the result of this uh, machine mechanization of the world we have twenty four seven sort of work periods going on across the world whereas before you know they went to sleep with the setting of the sun and they woke with the rising of the dawn now it's a twenty four seven Right? Yes, sir. So, uh, this uh, idea of artificial intelligence, okay, I think only a few people are capable of uh, actually bringing any significant, uh, you know, advances, technological advances in this field. Those which will be applied across the globe and uh, those which will be applied uh, and which humanity will have to face, okay? Yes, sir. Uh, I will not say that AI will actually help humanity, but of course uh, it can. Uh, we can't say that, you know, that uh, all the forms of dangerous work like those in mines and those explosives can be done by humans, but uh, robots and artificial intelligence, I think, they are, they are here to stay despite uh, many people you know, being against it and have the reason and common sense also rebels against having machines to our work because at that time it will be without any muscular effort at all. And we as old without gravity and our muscles become uh, yes. soft. But uh, nevertheless, you know, it is a step, uh, next step progress of civilization. That's what I think. So, thank you once again, sir. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been a great episode to shoot off and I hope you loved it. And uh, as the great Walter Cronkite said, that's the way that is. I really hope you love this episode. Thank you very much. See you again on episode 3. Thank you, sir, once again. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much.